What's up, March Mad Men listeners? Hope you're ready for part two of our report on the exhumation of Lake Mungo's corpse. Just a reminder that in this round of the competition, we're watching the movie while we talk, so there will be some references to that along the way. Let's dive back into Lake Mungo. Well, we took a little bit of a break there to refuel, recharge, and re-up the brewskis. And unlike... <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Um, unlike Rich, who likes to press the pedal to the metal with his last drink, I like to downshift. I'm going to crack a Miller Lite. <laughs> Rich, what do you have? Uh, well, as advertised, I brought a little bit of SoCal Comfort up here with me. And I'm going to crack open the very last of my six-pack of bacon and eggs, the Imperial Coffee Porter from our good friends at Pizza Port. Bacon and eggs. Wow, that sounds awesome. Those are two of my favorite things. Uh, Vic, what do you have, man? Well, John, first, I, I'm just wondering, uh, do you have a, like a like a beer pong tournament later? Is that why you have Miller Lite in your fridge? <laughs> I have found that Miller Lite is a really good home stretch beer for me, especially with our podcast, because if I keep pounding IPAs, I'm going to feel 80% worse tomorrow. There you go. With that in mind, I am drinking <laughs> I am drinking a Golden Monkey from Victory, another delightful Belgian triple, another heavy hitter. Yeah. Well, that's well, how you roll. It's not as heavy as some. No bourbon barrel quad tonight, huh? No. Mine is still, just to, to back you up, John, mine is a solid 8%, which is not, not bad. The gold monkey's still stronger, but good lord. Also, to be fair, like I think I poured my first margarita at four thirty today. So um. <laughs> outstanding. You're just John. You're just you're just holding off that hangover for another couple of hours, <laughs> <laughs> more or less. <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to the movie. We've uh, paused it on a delightful picture of two little girls, which I don't know where that fits into the whole thing. Well, I actually like so. This is this is coming right off of the the dad talking about. I'm glad it. I wish it was someone else's kid, not mine. Mm-hmm. And I actually appreciate that they they waited this long to show these like childhood. young yeah. childhood photos of her. Like up until this point, you've only seen her as pretty much very close to the date of her death. And this is the first time that she's been like contextualized as like a little girl that they've grown up with you know, for her entire life. Yeah, this is where we get a bunch of non-day-she-died footage, which is definitely good, including her dad chasing her around with a lobster, which I don't know why I get a kick out of that. He was a big Annie Hall fan. (laughs) Yes. And this uh, sort of shimmy and point dance routine that she does. uh, going to come back and haunt us a few times. Yes, we're going to see that, definitely. So Alice was reburied. This is all happening in June, the exhumation and stuff. Who or what was in those photos is the question. And the way this movie clicks through its plot points and gets from twist to twist, it's it's just such muscular storytelling. It's really impressive how it draws us along. And it is in 
very much in the tradition of a really good, I keep saying true crime, but it could be any, any kind of documentary where you're just like, there's all these plot twists and then the show just completely keeps you on the edge of your seat, drawing you through each of them. And you're, you're just amazed that this story keeps going, I guess. And that this film captures that perfectly. Uh, we're at 27 minutes. We're about to get another shoe dropping with some more beautiful establishing shots of Australia and our haunted house, which I think it is a haunted house. I think it's fair. Like the, the shots of this house are right up there with the most iconic of the haunted house movies that we've looked at in this tournament. It's not Amityville, I, but it's in the, uh, you know, it's in the Pantheon. I agree. Although I, I feel like the, the exterior shots are all kind of from the same angle and it's usually dark. Like I don't have a sense for what this house really looks like. Oh, I like in the daylight? I don't know how it is exactly, yeah. I know yeah, it's like in the dark with a porch light on, but, you know, compared to, like you were saying, Amityville or The Conjuring, I feel like I don't have a real sense for it physically. It's also very nondescript. I'd say that the, the closest parallel would be The Pact, right? You're talking about a very small house. Mm-hmm. You, certainly, you certainly learn to understand the interior quite well. You never really get the exterior. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be iconic architecture or anything. You know, that's not what I'm, I'm looking for. It's a, it's a normal, ordinary house. But those shots are, the night shots, are just sort of weirdly haunting and memorable to me. So now at this point, we're getting the introduction of the neighbor. And this is the big twist, is that... This guy broke into the house, or I guess you not, know, not yet. This is the this is the first her her reflection in the mirror. Oh yeah, even though he's visible, that's why I uh, goofed that up because I could see him in the mirror, You're looking on on the right. Yeah, yeah. Once your eye is uh, accustomed to the information, it's going to spot it again. It's fascinating, but the first time you see this movie, you're not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're we're just meeting Ray here who's the uh, psychic consultant and he's a local semi-celebrity. Some people are very skeptical of Ray, <laughs> Georgie, for example, <laughs> and, They're and rep- the cop. Number two radio psychic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do like, I mean, this is another performance that, that I like is the, whoever it is that's playing Ray. In Let's this talk case. I'm sorry. It. I don't have that. I don't have that handy. You know, I think the obvious choice if you're going to put a psychic in a movie is to either have them to be like the real deal or a huckster. And Ray seems like he's somewhere in between. Yeah. Uh, but not like firmly on either side of the line in a way where he becomes a character. He seems like someone who is relatively genuine who gets caught up in a very strange scenario, which is true of pretty much all the characters in this movie. He feels very authentic for a a role that I think in almost every other haunted house movie gets relegated to the character actor of the, of the crew um, to sort of come in and be a little bit of a a set piece midway through the film. But here he really just feels like a fabric of the, of the family and the story. He's fascinating because he's, he's so opaque. We can't read him as clearly authentic and we can't read him clearly as inauthentic. He has some of the tip-offs of a fraud, but I think the question, is Ray legit, is one of the film's best questions and most worthy of pondering. The movie is giving us nothing 
on this. Like, oh, well, if you just pay attention, you'll clearly see that he's real or you'll clearly see that he's a con man. Mm-hmm. He, the actor does a great job. And obviously, I mean, writing and directing contribute to this of just being like in, almost inscrutable. He says things and it's impossible. If this guy was playing us at poker, he would take all of my money. There's, there's <laughs> no tell. <laughs> My take on him, he really reminded me of the mother from Ouija, Origin of Evil. I was going to say the same thing, yeah. So, yeah, I think that he – I think he probably is a huckster who also thinks that he's probably helping people. Mm, Uh, And some of that is rationalization and some of that is probably genuine. But that's a complicated way to play this part. I think you're right on because that would explain it, right? I think it would be too far to say he has genuine power or, you know, great wisdom and insight. But at the same time, he doesn't have this self-awareness of, well, I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear. I think he's, he, he's buying in, you know, at least to the point like where he says, I think this is a great line I'm about to say. Like he's, he talks to a third of his clients are, are dead or dying or on their way to the grave, you know, they're terminal in some way. He, he t- says that I allow them the possibility that death is not the bitter end. That it's not the full stop as he puts it. And I, that gives him pleasure giving them that, that possibility. I'm not exactly sure what this says, but just the way that he behaves in this movie and the role he plays I feel like if you just took the word psychic and replaced it with priest throughout the film, it would still play perfectly well. Like he is fulfilling mm-hmm. the exact same role. There's the same level of like skepticism versus legitimate help that he's providing. It is that like that one person who doesn't quite have knowledge of the beyond, but is still people are, are placing their faith in him. His library yeah. of tapes would be very different if he was a priest. Um, yes. But ouch. And frowned upon. Actually, I found myself thinking as we're having this discussion, like, wouldn't it be awesome if at the end of Poltergeist, Tangina was just like, look, I just made all that shit up, but hey, it worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I helped I helped them, so hey, who 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 hurts? That'll be five hundred dollars. Well, I think it's very revealing the the frame that I paused on as we look at it, where he says what happens after death is up for grabs anyway. That's the gray area between believing and not believing. He truly is one of those people who's like, well, I don't know what happens. So this very well could be what happens that, you know, there's some consciousness and, and whatnot. You can commune with spirits that are gone because we don't know. And he's in that, he really is legitimately in the camp where he's not like, I'm not lying to people because nobody knows. (laughs) You know, I don't know for a fact that I'm making this shit up. Uh, because we don't know it, it's up for grabs. So I think that that allows him to be sincere versus, yeah, like a true, I'm putting up a, a facade. Tangina appeared to be a, a true believer, but, uh, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> moving on from meeting Ray, he says something that we talked about in terrified. I think it was, you cover all the mirrors in the house to stop the dead from finding a way back. I know it came up in the dialogue in terrified. We discussed this concept when we covered that show here. It seems defensive in nature clearly, which I think I 
alluded to when we talked about terrified, the idea is like you don't want them to come back. I actually find this an interesting character note. So he mentions that he changed his name, and I, mm-hmm. I believe it was his first name. Yep. When he mentions that where I come from, this is what we do. Well, again, that uh, as we talked about when we were doing terrified, that is that is part of the Jewish uh, rite of sitting sitting shiva for the dead. Yeah. And yeah. so I wonder if – and he says, I changed my name because I thought Ray was a more trustworthy name for a psychic. And so I wonder if he's, if he's concealing his, his Jewish heritage, just what that, what that says about him. I don't know. He, he made a reference to the wog. I guess wog is a slur. He, he jokingly called himself the wog psychic. So, yeah, I think he's – that's one of those lines, that's one of the tip-offs of a fraud that I was talking about, where it's like he's making these kind of candid but but sly references to his repositioning of his identity or working his presentation to be trustworthy. He's aware of the game that he's playing, right? That's the idea. It's a racial slur or slang for just a person who is not white or a dark-skinned person, dark-skinned mm-hmm. foreigner. That's what wog means? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, maybe they use that term more in uh, Australia. But we have this heavy consultation here that he's having with apparently a, a client, uh, this woman who has terminal cancer. And again, he attributed that to about a third of his clients, uh, something along these lines. He has a weird line here. Let's see if we can get... You're going to die, Annie. It's just the start of something else. Wow. That's what you tell her. you know. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I find it to be like... I actually imagine that when you're in that position... I feel like there's probably like a candor and frankness in like, especially in the way that he delivers it, that I actually sort of, I buy as being comforting to people. Yeah. Typically when someone's in that stage of their, of their life, I think a lot of people are are dancing around it and not talking about it and not acknowledging the realities of it. So I think having someone who seems almost comfortable with it probably is effective. It's such a blunt statement. It's coming from a place, a helpful place. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting that from anyone else, probably. So, yeah, we see his wall of tapes here. And he, this is another one of those sort of open-ended, you can read it a couple different ways. He says he records his clients and keeps the tapes to protect himself. He's suggesting that he's protecting himself from legal liability and or scurrilous accusations of wrongdoing while they're under trance or hypnosis, which makes sense, but just shows that he's aware of the sort of sordid possibilities of his business. Why do you have to do that, Ray? (laughs) (laughs) Just come up at some point in the past? (laughs) Exactly. Better to be safe than sorry. His method is very interesting. I mean, one of the things when we talk about, like, whether he's sort of the genuine article or not, he doesn't ever demonstrate any any powers or abilities with anyone. All he does is is, is sort of put these people in trance and have them walk around their house. And that's – I mean, look, it, it works effectively in the film, and it's a very different take on these kinds of scenes than we've seen, I think, in any of the other sort of haunted house films. There's nothing in here that suggests that he's actually psychic. 
No, no, there's there's he's very much kind of plays a, a therapist. And I think that the closest you see is that earlier there was a scene where he was giving a consultation to someone we who's not one of our characters uh, over the radio. And he's like telling her, you know, like someone from your past is going to return to your life. Like that sort of generic psychic shtick that you hear. Yeah. If he's purporting to be a psychic, that means he's being dishonest to a degree, right? Can we agree on that? Probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These so, tracking shots through the house really remind me of the pact. I know it's yes. come up a couple of times now. Yeah, it's very eerie working our way down this hallway. The scene we're talking about, Ray is with the mother, June, and she's revisiting her dreams. And in this dream that she has, she sees the sneakers are at Alice's door. Alice's habit, apparently, was to leave her shoes outside of her door. And to me, that indicates that June is the ghost in this scenario. That and Russell's story, as we were talking about before, hinted the possibility that the precognition that Alice experienced was in part these visitations by her ghostly parents. Except for her parents, it's a dream in June's case, and for Russell, it's a waking experience. But the idea is that we're ghosts in each other's realities. The ghost and the person are, are, are roles, the living person. The ghost and the living person are roles that we can interchangeably play. And that, that's why the shoes come to me, because the ghost wouldn't have shoes outside of the door. The fact that the shoes are there indicate that this is she's visiting Alice in her life. Mm, she's the ghost. Exactly. Most of the these instances of overlapping dreams, because the, remember the father has this encounter with her, but there's no, there's nothing to indicate that that that's something Alice remembered or experienced as a living person. We don't have you know the the interviews with Ray, for instance, to back that up. So it really it helps create this sense that that mother and daughter are are basically still trying to connect even in this kind of astral plane that they're reaching out across time or something because they couldn't connect in real life, that they're trying to connect in this other sort of more spiritual way. I think that's part of the tragedy is that they can come close. They can strive to bridge this gap that they couldn't bridge in life, but they're, they're never able to do it in death. Yep. It's too late. Yeah, exactly. Guys, I, I, I love you both, and uh, I, I really, you really mean a lot to me as friends, and <laughs> I'm not going to wait. See, that way, when I kick the bucket, Vic will be like, I got no fucking regrets. I told yeah. that guy everything I needed to do. When you see all my three-way videos, <laughs> <laughs> you might change your tune. I w- was watching this, and now I keep the we keep the beer in the garage in the garage i had to go outside to get to so i went outside to get a drink and i opened the garage and the garage is packed full of shit as i was closing the refrigerator door i was like what if there's because i didn't have the garage locked i was like what if there's somebody else in the garage my brain was trained to look for faces in weird corners hiding behind boxes or like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i i like so when i watched it last night i was I was sober until and I decided to I decided to go outside and smoke 30 minutes before the end and mm-hmm. I really had to like I really had to like weigh that decision and I was like I was like I can go get high 
but if I'm going to get high and watch the last 30 minutes of this movie, I'm just not getting out of bed for the rest of the night. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not going to walk out. I'm not going to get up and go to the bathroom. I'm not going to go to the kitchen. Like, this is just it. You're down for the night. In case I wasn't clear, I was high when I was going outside <laughs> to the garage and, and freaking out that there was, yeah. I, I felt like I, maybe I should have said this explicitly. This viewing, yes, high. Uh, I was really scared by this movie. The last couple times we talked about this, I was like, it's not scary. It's not a horror movie. And I had a completely different experience watching it this time. So, yeah, we've got this memory of a dream that June is recounting where she goes into Alice's room. She's narrating it to the audience and, of course, Ray in her hypnosis. It's, It's all about that, but it's also quite terrifying if you haven't seen the film before the first time you watch this i i maintain that the first viewing of this movie is scary as hell and you can kind of come back to it but potentially but there will be this is one of those movies that i would love to share the first viewing with somebody they have no idea what's happening because the dread the creeping dread and the possibilities are so rich and so powerful I agree, but I also feel like when I've shared this movie with other people, and and we kind of mentioned this before, it can be very polarizing because I think some people feel cheated by the lack of traditional scares. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a movie that I give caveats when I recommend it. I I say you have to be in the mood for something that's not, you know, lots of blood and guts and action and stuff like that. If that's the kind of horror movie you're feeling like, yeah, you'll be let down by this movie. But if you want something to just work its way under the edges of your consciousness and infiltrate your mind and make you think about life and death in a different way and loss, this movie will will freak you right the fuck out. Nothing against that other type of movie. Go watch Terrified. Exactly. Those two movies are diametric opposites Mm -hmm. and equally valid. But those movies could not – these two films, Terrified and Lake Mungo, they're not even playing the same sport, you know? Essentially, they're competing right now. And it's it's like, (laughs) well, we'll, (laughs) are the Lakers going to beat the the Patriots? You know, that's what we're talking about. Sorry, Rich, for the sport ball reference. (laughs) It does set up – and, and that exact dichotomy occurred to me as I was watching it this time. That is, I think, one of the important dichotomies that have come up as we've gone through this process, that there is a level of importance to the horror aspect of the film. Is it frightening? Is it, is it gory? Is it upsetting? Is it unsettling? But there's also this other side – what are the characters? What are the themes? What are the things I'm investing in? Is it is it asking big questions? Is it answering those questions? Terrified hits the horror part of it out of the park, and I and I'm a little less sure about the other side of it. This it hits the film side of it, the more traditional aspects of just any film or work of art. It really hits those out of the park, but does it have the horror chops? to be considered the best haunted house film ever made. I don't know. I mean, that's, but, but figuring out that dichotomy and seeing how it's come up sort of over and over again in, in this process, I think has been really surprising 
how much that's come to the fore in my head when I'm thinking about these films. Well, I don't usually twist myself into knots. Like I, I have a remarkable consistency. Literally, if I look at a movie when I'm 11 or 12, I probably still like it today. That's not 100% true. With this movie, I'm kind of embarrassed potentially of some of my comments on this podcast about this movie previously. I feel like I sort of missing it or barking up the wrong tree or I'm having second thoughts. Yeah, admittedly, I took two edibles the last time and I was completely in the right frame of mind, but I found this movie terrifying when I watched it this last time. I just got on the wavelength and it worked its way under my skin. I'm sort of questioning the way that I was, I believe, I'd have to review our our, our show, but I, I believe I was vociferously mocking the film for not being scary enough. I think Rich and I got into it a couple times, as I recall, about that. And I'm not I'm backing off from that stance, but at the same time, I could watch it again in a different headspace or with a different group, and I could completely be reminded of its quote-unquote shortcomings from a, a visceral Perspective. I mean, this movie is, it's like a, a fine wine. And sometimes you want to drink tequila and get fucked up and have fun. And sometimes you're like, you want to roll it around on your tongue and have it activate all those sensors and comment on, on the finish and all that. I think, not to say this movie's pretentious or anything, but I just think it's a, it's a subtler draught. It is. And, and the horror, like the, I mean, you hit this word earlier, but like I, I put it down in my notes in a couple places. Chilling is the right word. It is. Yeah. It, I don't know that horrific, except in a, a couple of instances, is a word that I would choose to describe it. But it is consistently chilling. Even some, a couple of them feel a little overwrought. Every twist and turn, every reveal, every frame that they show you and then and then show you again is filled with a just a chilling vibe and at no point or not no point at almost no point in the film does the darkness in this movie even feel threatening but it always feels present there's always something else in the room with you in this movie and i whether it's the first time you watch it or the third time you watch it i think that that always reads loud and clear that something is always in the room just out of your sight. <laughs> You're saying that, that right now? We, we have it frozen. I don't want to derail your point, but I'm just like, we're looking at the seance right now and I see her lurking in the background. And I think this is one of the fake shots, but it's still kind of creeped me out hearing you say that and, and looking and like, oh yeah, there's a ghost in the frame right now that we're paused on. But yeah, go ahead. Continue. I mean, it, no, it's, it's just a, it is a, that's a tough type of tension to sustain over the course of an entire movie. And I think that most movies that would try that would, would fail. You end up becoming kind of forced like a paranormal activity, right? Where it's like, you're trying to do a lot with a little, and you just end up having diminishing returns. This movie, it goes the opposite direction. It, it only is ratcheting up the tension, like just a hair above where it was before, but it's just enough and it keeps going up. It never goes down. I'm glad that you found some enjoyment out of it. I'm with you that, Yes, I can see how you could. You might watch it again in the future, and you might be like, "No, I was right." <laughs> like it's not. It's not really a scary movie, but but uh, but sure, c- catch yourself in the 
the right place at the right time. And like, it can be extremely effective. I'll say this, like the people that say it's terrifying, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong anymore. I'll, I'll just say that. Sorry. Go ahead, Rick. Also, John, I, I just want to be clear. I've said many things on this podcast that I'm embarrassed by. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> don't, don't beat yourself up when I listen to the podcast. Sometimes I, I actually dread things that I know are coming up, and I'm like, am I going to be able to listen to this, or am I going to have to skip it? <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not alone there. <laughs> so the one conventional thing that Lake Mungo gives us is a seance, and that's the scene that we're paused on right now. It's very basic. They're not even holding hands. To the smoothie's credit. <laughs> That's your baseline. Well, what are the basic ingredients of a seance? Okay, well, they are sitting around a table. I, I thought holding hands was like one of the, the quintessential uh, components of, yeah, of a seance. You, you got to hold hands. You got to have a piece of paper that someone can draw. And yeah. you have to have a tape recorder so that you can record it and then play it back later to discover that there were voices in the background that you couldn't hear at the time. <laughs> Is there a candle? I don't even see a candle. <laughs> yeah, they don't even have a candle. a candle. I think they've got a Jamba Juice on the table. That's- <laughs> <laughs> this is an embarrassment of a seance. <laughs> the point of this scene is to show that their seance sucked. <laughs> <laughs> it is the big lots of seances. <laughs> Ooh, from a future sponsor suddenly changes their mind. <laughs> Shit. It's the Walmart of no, damn it. (laughs) So we get one of our big reveals. It's the Kmart because they're out of business already. Yeah, sorry, Rich. So we get one of our big reveals here, which which is the the probably the first time I want. I think I want to call this out, but they had the seance. The seance didn't lead to anything, and then the next day they reviewed the footage that Matthew recorded of it on video, and they they zoomed in and realized that actually Allie was standing in the in the distant background of another room um right. on camera uh staring at them inexplicably first time you um, see this this is very scary it is cool and very creepy the way that they zoom in on on this bad video has that it's like the the old it's like the csi joke the like enhance <laughs> you know, yeah yeah like they have they have video that that somehow they managed to zoom in on the ghost in the background and it its features get more clear as you get closer to it like it's just not the way that pixelated video works no <laughs> this really is like 90 minutes of people reviewing footage it's crazy it's like just it's all it's, they, and, and talking all they, all they do is like well, we reviewed the footage from last night, and this is what we found. The movie does a great job of sort of camouflaging that fact, but it keeps shoehorning in. Like, almost every plot element is, oh, well, luckily somebody took a picture of that, or their camera was running, and let's study that footage, and here we saw this. They beat that to death. The Mandalorian has this structural cliche this uh repetition where every episode seems to be he comes to a new planet he pays someone off for information they send him somewhere else in order to get their help they this person asks him to do something for them and so that mission is basically the episode he succeeds in whatever task that they needed his help with and then they move him one inch closer to his larger goal well in this movie everything is 
hey, well, I happen to be shooting something and I saw this and that moves the plot forward, right? Mm-hmm. At this point, everyone in town is talking about Ray and he has this sway over the characters, the family, the Palmers. People are starting to think, you know, he's leeching money out of them or something along those lines. Everyone's skeptical. (laughs) It's a really kind of a funny moment where they ask the police chief, well, what was your view on Ray? Also very skeptical. (laughs) She's just great. She's another great, it's another great performance. I mean, it's sort of stony in one note, but I really appreciate her performance. Yes. Yes. And he compares himself to Rasputin. That's his reputation in this situation. And a little also, birthday also footage. A wog, by the way. Ah, yes, a wog, definitely. <laughs> I'm not totally following the plot at this point. <laughs> so we're, basically what, what happened was, so Matthew, the, the brother, and, and Ray, the psychic, decided to set up cameras that would just run all the time in the house. Right. And they're just trying to capture footage. And sure enough, they, they do. In, in Allie's room, they zoom into a mirror and you see this image of Allie sitting in her chair in the corner of the room, almost yes. just off camera. And then there's another shot where they zoom in. And this one, I actually had a very hard time making this out until they show it again later, which is that you zoom deep into a hallway and you see a mirror sitting on a bookshelf. And in the mirror, you can see Allie. But in both cases, it's it's her in seen, being seen in a mirror. You got to say enhance, and then the enhance. Yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> they enhanced it, and they were and they were they were gobsmacked. They say. And we are going to learn that those were the situations where Matthew had set up a TV, and the mirror is picking up the reflection of Allie on the TV. And so that's how those shots were obtained. And that's, again, one of the things that make subsequent viewings less fascinating. Because when you're working your way through this mystery the first time, every, everything is just riveting. In multiple viewings, stuff like this are like, yeah, okay, now this is the part of the movie where we're just exposing Matthew. Got it. That doesn't have the same impacts, clearly, and intrigue then, you know, when it's all new to you. It doesn't, but yeah, the the first time you watch this movie, like, I feel like this is one of those great moments where, like, the floor kind of comes out from under you, where you're only, I mean, you're only halfway into the movie, and you start to wonder, like, well, what, what is this movie about? Yeah. I thought, I thought I knew what this was, and now I don't. Oh, yeah, the misdirection here, the game that it's playing with the audience is fantastic. I'm envious of people watching this for the first time. We get this footage of Matthew wearing his sister's hoodie and essentially posing for the the Smeet photo or the Smeet footage. Did he stage that on purpose? Well, if you look really closely, you can see a zipper in the front of his hoodie and a Bigfoot in the woods behind yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. You get where I'm know, going. Genuine question, though. What is he? Why is he out there with his sister's hoodie? I believe he gives some type of explanation. It's somewhat innocuously explained, I think. He's saying, I was there, I was wearing Alice's jacket when Bob Smeet's uh, video was, or pictures were taken. He noticed Bob Smeet, he didn't want to be in the guy's photo, so he walked away, and that's how he walked into the other couple's photo, their video, rather. 
he was just wearing her jacket and he happened because this was the first time, right? This isn't, this is before he was faking anything in the other videos. In the chronology of the film, this happens after the photo of Alice in the backyard. Well, this was April, I believe. So April is prior to the exhuming the body in June and all that. So yeah, I don't think he was necessarily up to anything there. I think that he had already taken the photo of Alice in the backyard. At this point in the movie, he's explaining that the April 28th photo he composited. I don't think him walking around in the background in her jacket, like, did he really think that was going to move the needle? He was counting on people noticing that? I don't know, no, maybe. He, no, he, ju- he just said that he was avoiding them because he didn't want to be in a photo. Right, so it's kind of neither here nor there. Yeah, I think it was an accident. At least from his perspective, it's a complete coincidence that this kicked off anything. Even though one of the effects that was that that convinced June that she was alive, that Alice was alive, but that's actually completely at cross purposes to his stated goal, which was convincing June that Alice was dead. So it actually worked against him, and it might have been a catalyst for why he needed to go to the trouble of selling his mother on the idea that Alice was a a ghost. It's very convoluted. (laughs) Even after she's exhumed, he continues making fake images. Mm -hmm. That's what, what really leads me to this place of this is about Matthew trying to keep her alive in some way that he's trying to keep her as part of it. And that really tracks with me as a character motivation, even though they don't, they don't say it explicitly, that this is his way of processing his grief. Forget about what it caused. Like he was walking around wearing her hoodie. I mean, like, sure. This was all about him, like trying to process this. Yeah. There's kind of a side plot about the town's gossip. The family just seems to be keeping itself in the headlines somehow, sometimes literally, We have the insinuations of two interview subjects uh, about Ray, the speculation and the skepticism. And then I I found that odd, and I brought this up before, that we kind of drop all that when it comes to Matthew's hoax. There's not a lot of discussion of the fallout that this, this kid would have done this really objectionable thing, which is faking a haunting and getting public attention for it. When we met, meet the Withers, the couple that happened to have their own damn video from that fateful day, we're, we're wondering, okay, what now? I'm trying to put myself in the, in the perspective of someone who's only seen this movie once. At that point, the audience knows narratively that just seeing Alice again in the background of some footage isn't going to cut it. So the film very intelligently knows we've got to up the ante. We've, we need a twist here. We need a surprise. And what's it going to be? Well, it's that it's it's not her; it's him. And there's there's a great build up there. It's an interesting moment. You're dying to know. Oh well, what did the Withers have? You get the reveal that the original figure in the first video was in fact Matthew. So if you're really paying attention as the first time viewer, you know, even if we haven't gotten to him faking anything yet that Matthew was uh, taken for Alice at the start of all of the photography because he's wearing the jacket. And you kind of get the impression that if that coincidence had not happened, and if the Withers hadn't proved it was him in Bob Smeet's video, that Matthew never would have confessed to what he did, the faking, 
of the video. That's the only reason that Russell confronts his son and Matthew says he didn't want to lie to his father. And he acknowledges that this deceit made it harder for his mother, but that was not his intention. It's kind of hard to get a handle on this kid, exactly what he's doing and why. I I, I do kind of struggle with it, but it's a huge turn. It's definitely a huge turn. Very dramatic. You get the impression from him that even he's not 100% clear. Like There's nothing about it that feels like it's necessarily hazy from a character point of view. It's all very consistent with someone who's struggling to cope with the death of their sister. Right. And as Vic just pointed out, he says something is better than nothing, which kind of implies the idea of trying to keep something alive of his sister. And is it as a behavior, like how much weirder is it than wandering into strangers' homes mm-hmm. and meandering around their living room looking at, at pictures of their family? 12%. I think that's a, a pretty good number. It's also a lot more labor-intensive, but yes. Than, than B&E, yes, I suppose. Fraud, a little more labor-intensive than B&E, it's true. <laughs> more artistic, Although- though. In in Ararat, no doors are locked, so it's just entering. There's no breaking. Yeah, I don't, I don't think she actually <laughs> jimmied any locks or anything. I love the idea that Ararat, the, the only crime is just entering. <laughs> One of the friends references that they heard she was doing that, so she must have gotten caught at some point. Otherwise, well, lo- it wouldn't I'll be public be- record. Yeah, when, when they make that comment, I do love the idea that, like, that's just a rumor going around town. It's like, hey, so I hear your mom has been walking to people's houses at night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's almost Canadian, right? Like, I don't think of the – I mean, I know Australians are pleasant people, but Canadians are almost mythically so. They're like, if a Canadian person comes downstairs and there's a stranger in their living room, they're just like, hey, uh, are you okay? <laughs> do you need anything? Yeah. <laughs> it is very there, – there's something very small town about it. I mean I guess that, that's kind of what we were saying earlier, right? It's like this – yeah, this is the only kind of place where that kind of thing can happen. They talk about the public scrutiny and people digging into their business and good old Georgie comes back and says that the Palmers were not coping very well with this. Things were very bad. That – For Georgie's husband. He just looks miserable in all this footage. He seems like kind of a hand-packed hubby. (laughs) (laughs) The idea comes across in Georgie's um, dialogue that June, she just can't move on from her daughter and her death at this point. It hurt her to actually have the scam that her son perpetrated revealed because she actually preferred the idea that in some way Alice was still here, even if it was as a ghost. And it was devastating to her to learn that maybe she was just completely gone. So being a ghost is preferable, I guess is what we're saying. June was not ready to let Alice go. Her husband thinks that she'd rather believe Alice was a ghost than nothing at all. And I I completely get that. It's kind of a metaphor for the stages of grief, not Kubler-Ross exactly, but you know, first June refuses to believe that Alice is dead. She thinks she's alive. Then she refuses to believe that she isn't a ghost. <laughs> you know, in some way, Alice is still out there. That's the bottom line. Well, and it makes that detail of them not being churchgoers extremely relevant because mm-hmm. that's what it means. If she's not a ghost, it means she's gone. It means yes. there's nothing. 
She's right. not in heaven. She's not in a better place. She no longer is. And that would be a devastating realization to have to grapple with. And I can see why you would cling to grainy images on, uh, you know, eight millimeter cameras. Yeah. I've mentioned this in the past that the avenging ghost is a substitute for the avenging angel. And for a certain percentage of us who don't want to believe in traditional religious ideas like angels and whatnot, get some comfort from the idea that ghosts can right wrongs and come in and enforce moral imperatives. And somehow that is less far-fetched to us. I think that that sort of taps into that same basic idea is that even if you refute the, the Bible or traditional institutional religion, you might have found your own equally fantastical, let's say potentially alternative to that, but that also serves the same functions beings that exist and, and persist beyond mortality and can be heroic or can set the the scales of justice right. I'm more referring to other movies when I talk about setting things right, but I mean, we get that in both The Devil's Backbone and What Lies Beneath, so it felt relevant. This movie has a, has a touch of it uh, as you get to like the climax of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, not, yeah, yeah, not quite the same. The, the other thing you're getting at just in terms of looking at the plot of this film is interesting for a haunted house movie because John, you're kind of the, the act police, so you can comment on this. But you know, I, I'd roughly say we're we're firmly at the at the kickoff of the of the second act um, here. No, um, we're at the midpoint, or actually past the midpoint. What's interesting is that we're about to spend a substantial portion of the movie having it not be a haunted house movie. Like we basically have just been told that it's actually not a haunted house after all, and we're going to continue to get evidence that supports the fact that it's not a haunted house. We're not going to return back to that idea really until the very end of the film. I think it's about 10 minutes. I I, correct me if I'm wrong. We'll see that. But when we get the real Alice ghost in footage, it's roughly 10 minutes, but I think, yeah, at this point we're waiting for the other shoe to drop because we know something there's got to be more twists to this movie. We're not just going to resolve it here. The first time audience member is wondering, okay, he was faking it. So what happens now? We're halfway through this movie. Basically it comes down to what sort of turn are you going to give us and how well are you going to execute it? But I, I think I distinctly remember the first time I saw this movie at this point, I'm like, okay, the ghost isn't real. All right. What what now? And they kind of go out of their way at this point in the movie to while we're not in the in the the ghostly realm of the story, we're going to start exploring a little bit of the hearing the mother grandmother backstory. You know, right? They they spend a bit with June's mother talking about the fact that that she was never really able to make a connection with her own daughter. And I mean, this is digging into the, you know, like the much deeper theme and emotional story of this movie. Well, and the tragedy of the mother and daughter who can't fully connect what was unsaid, unexpressed and the regret. And as we discussed earlier, this sort of matrilineal quality to that, that 
is weirdly inescapable. It wasn't that they had a fight and, you know, there was a breach of trust and their relationship was damaged. This, this film posits that there's just this fundamental divide between them. It's interesting. It also just feels so, again, in terms of the, the movies we've been watching, it feels so individual and downright, like, quaint. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's always about, like, solving a murder or, or uncovering a, a big mystery. And in this case, like, there, you know, there there is a mystery that we're going to reveal. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like the, the right to be wronged is just a relationship that never was. Yeah. And that is so feels so like intimate and personal compared to these broader and pulpier themes that you often get with these movies. Exactly. Yeah. There's nothing tales from the crypty about this plot at all. It's, it's very personal and maybe sci-fi like the concepts are, are, are big and interesting, but there's nothing melodramatic about it whatsoever. I just want to say to all of our listeners, for the rest of this podcast going forward, and I don't just mean this season, forever, if John uses the word matrilineal... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, says the guy that... you're drinking, it is bottoms up, guys. (laughs) All right, and if Vic mentions Victor Hugo, you have to pound whatever it is that's in front of you as well. I was going to say Halloween H2O, but then our whole audience would just die. No, no, that's, that's a sip, not a, (laughs) not a chug. (laughs) Okay. Here's the video of, uh, the get out video where she comes running out and it, it definitely seems to rich touched on this. And then it struck me as well. Did the father just watch this video? It's a theory. It's a possibility. And, the idea that he had seen this video could have led him to have not a hallucination, but let's just say it could have informed his experience that he believes he had because the fact that it dovetails so clearly with an actual video that he may have watched suggests that he may not remember having seen it, but it got into his subconscious. Was it some sort of echo? Like that's the that was mm-hmm. kind of the thought that I had about it. Well, I mean, in my whole sci-fi reading of this movie, you're right. But in the non-sci-fi version, in the strictly psychological version, that would explain it that he'd seen the video. Yeah, I guess that's what's what's kind of interesting is that there is this version of the film that, that I don't I don't accept this reading, but there is a version of this film where absolutely nothing supernatural. Well. I guess you can't really say that. Not there's quite. One thing, there's, yeah, there's one, there's one thing that is definitely supernatural, but everything else in the movie you could say has is given an explanation. And here, by the way, at 52 minutes or so, we get the roaring grand return of the supernatural to the film. And that's when Matthew comes back from gallivanting around Australia with Ray to find that the day and a half of footage that he has on the cameras he left back in the house suddenly is picking up the real ghost all over the place, including standing beside her parents' bed, which is something that June's dreams 
had foretold. This is a great twist, obviously. I mean, those of us that want the movie to be supernatural are really happy with it. I think that the criticism that I was having earlier was this felt like it was two seconds after Matthew confesses his whole thing. We get and we get no mileage out of the idea that, oh, my God, like he faked it. And where are we going to take that? What what can we do with that narratively? And then we instead of that, we just immediately say, oh, and now she's in the footage. But I think I was wrong. I, it's It's about 10 minutes of the movie before we have this turn where suddenly she's actually here. So I, I have less of a problem with it. And a fair bit of narrative as well. There's a, a fair bit that happens, I feel like, in those 10 minutes. But we don't even have yet the threesome, do we? That's coming up. No, that's yeah. coming up. Mm-hmm. For, for some reason, I had forgotten this, that she, she actually shows up in the footage this early. Yeah, at the 52-minute mark, we get, like, the real ghost. And we start... Going back to the other characters and checking in on like the the yeah. townies, Naomi Watts's niece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and back to Ray. One of the things that I like is that the director seems to ask almost all of his interview subjects, "Do you believe in ghosts?" Mm-hmm. Here we get sort of a supercut of them, but he's been asking it all along. That undercurrent of like, "Don't forget, this is a this is a haunted house movie. We're dealing what we're dealing with is ghosts." And the other thing about that scene with Russell that we get maybe the other half, like from the point of view of Matthew with a camera, is that if it's not sci-fi, if that's something that she's reliving as a ghost, that means it was significant. You know, if a ghost is playing out a pattern of some kind, it's usually not making toast. It's because there was something amiss about that loop that needs to be, that can't be dealt with. And that's why it's recurring. And that made me wonder, like, was there something weird with her and her father or her brother where she's telling them to get out so aggressively? Is there something insidious about that? Probably not, but it's just something to think about. Her father said that she was, she was checking her phone. Like she was looking for a text message. And I wondered if it had something to do with the threesome. Yes, the thruple. The thruple. Her brother had come in very nearly at a point where he could have caught on to one of these secrets. Right. And she would have had that that strong of a reaction. And there was her father getting getting to witness that vulnerability. The family perceives this double life of hers as being that, oh, well, she was with this couple and there was – that's a big deal, and that obviously is a secret. But the real secret that she's keeping from them is that her real double life is that she's experiencing this dislocation where she's unmoored from the present timeline, and she's also getting these snapshots of the future, including the fact that she's going to die. That's what's freaking her out more than anything, I think it's safe to say. And she does not share that with anyone. I love that interpretation of it because it, it kind of gets to what Vic, you were exploring last time with that idea of, you know, and we'll see how we, what we think as we get there. But, you know, there was that discussion of like, did, did the, did the vision of her own death ultimately be the thing that, that kind of caused her to like get engaged with the, with the neighbors and, and all that business? Like, was that her sort of like flailing 
in this state of like existential confusion, even if it seems like the answer is no, that, that things didn't play in that order, you know, John, what you're talking about is that her seeing her own death was just the nail in the coffin, no pun intended. Hmm. And that this was actually a, a much longer running thing in her life. This dislocation, as you called it, the behavior that she was exhibiting was like a, was a result of, of something that was like greater and much more existential. By the time she gets to Lake Mungo and that happens, she's already had a bunch of experiences. This is an ongoing situation that she's been wrestling with. The whole idea with the couple tying into it, I don't know if we get any time codes or something literal with that, but okay, she's 16 when she dies, right? And she starts babysitting for them when she's 14 or something. I don't know when things got sexual, but it's hard to believe that was since like Mungo, or for example, you know, which was in August, and then she dies in December. I get the feeling it's been going on over a year. That's my impression, but I feel like we've mm-hmm. got kind of got to pick it apart to see. Yeah. There is no dates associated with the relationship. One of the questions June asks is, you know, when did, when did it start? Uh, so we don't ever get an answer to that. I just think one of the things I wonder about is how did she change as a result of that, of her experience in Lake Mungo in those intervening four months? What did that do to her behavior? Because I feel like it would be significant. I feel like it would be substantial. But her family doesn't really talk about it in any way. So it makes me think that with them, she was still sort of normal. So what else was going on? If the Tuies weren't in the picture or this couple, if the Thruple were not involved at all, does that mean none of this happens? Is it irrelevant? What correlation is that to the state that she finds herself in and the things she sees and what happens to her ultimately? Is it a cause? Is it correlated or is it irrelevant? This leads to them searching Alice's room and in the in the room they're trying to find out why the neighbor was in there. They find this safe and out of the safe, they pull what appears to be a, a journal, a scarf, and a videotape. This video would be called Banging the Babysitter, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate that the, the Tui sex tape is composed of – there's a bed in a, in a room that, that is exposed brick. There's, a, <laughs> there's an organ. A like Wurlitzer a, like a, or something. <laughs> yeah, like a home like electric organ. <laughs> What looks like some kind of like air compressor? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking first, I, I guess that's just a window shade, but then I'm like, is that a screen that they can put stag videos on or something? It looks like a screen. There's there's like a, a picture of like James Dean playing pool in the corner. <laughs> yeah. College dorm room? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's quite the sex dungeon. So <laughs> the, the main questions here are what happened to the Tuies? Like where'd they get away to? And the ramifications of this as they, as it all connects to Alice. So she had a boyfriend, but she was also a secret member of a thruple on top of the fact she knew that when she was going to die, or at least that her doom was coming. And she did not say anything about any of this to anyone, but we don't know. Did she tell the Tuies something? I mean, did sometimes people are weird, like with their relationships 
they feel comfortable disclosing certain things to people you wouldn't think that they would. It's just kind of interesting to wonder, did she know anything more than she told Ray? Is there something sinister to this story in the sense with the Tuis? Is it somehow the reason, as I just asked, like that Alice is doomed? I don't see why, because if anything, she's a victim here. It's not like she's this is her her guilty shame that you know her wrongdoing stems from this secret even as cause and effect are they responsible the twoies as russell suggests for reasons that don't make much sense to me as he'll word them are they responsible for her death in some way what do you guys think I just want to know who plays the organ while they're having a threesome. <laughs> they all take turns. Are they playing chopsticks? Like, what's the what's the soundtrack? Is it the Star Wars theme? I think they bring on like a fourth person to play the organ while they couple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do appreciate the way in in this in the Tui sex tape the way that they reveal that the that the wife was a part of it as well. Yeah, because it's broken down into several shots. At first, it's like you, you have a pretty good idea of what you're getting into fairly quickly. And then, like, the, 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 you see the shot of, like, the wife on bed with her. And yeah. it's like, oh, it's like, uh, this is, like, more complicated than. Well, yeah, she's, she's sort of just third wheeling it there. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, yeah, she's in the mix for sure. Yeah, I mean, we could get into exactly how old she is, and that's it's pretty creepy. But, yeah, in any event, Russell says... He thinks they're complicit in her death, and he says, I believe if it hadn't been for them, she would have reached out to us. She wouldn't have felt guilty. I mean, that's a real question, isn't it? I don't think this is what he means, but if the Tuies weren't in the picture, would she have talked to her parents or anyone about the time dislocation and the the foreboding of doom? I mean, look, that's that's super tough to say. Like, I guess you're getting at the heart of, like, what drives this movie, which is that you don't know Alice. So right. You never will. You, yeah. How can, how can you suppose whether that is true or not? My, like, sort of instinctual logic is, like, no. Like, they're in denial. I interpreted it as once you start keeping secrets, it's easy to keep keeping secrets. That once she had this sort of shameful thing that she was – not sharing with them that needed to be locked in a safe in her room, that then when other things happened, she was more comfortable keeping them secret and not sharing them with her family. Not that it was sort of, that it was in any way directly responsible. It was just sort of the erosion of the intimacy that she had with her parents and compartmentalization of her life. That's a father grappling with the fact that his daughter was getting older and developing a life that she wasn't comfortable sharing with him. I'm not saying that it's a healthy relationship for her to be fucking the neighbors, but at a certain point, teenagers pull away and they stop telling you things. And so it almost seems more just like a natural reaction from the father than it does a a narrative signpost that we should be taking something from. Yeah. That's kind of my instinct as well. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. One of my like first takes on this movie is that it is just sort of this blown out supernatural version of what it's like to be a teenager. Alice was becoming a person that her parents didn't know, which I think probably happens with most teenagers. And, you know, this point of separation where you start to become your own person. Well, yeah, we also get the idea that her boyfriend and others seem disillusioned by Alice and her hidden facets, if not 
faces. It's disconcerting to, to find out after death that somebody was totally living a life that they, they never shared with you. It's a betrayal, right? Obviously, in his case. We're at the point that you guys were alluding to before. I thought we were pretty good, he says. And we get that photo or a different photo of her writing on her boyfriend's back. The idea of unanswered questions. When did the relationship start? Like, how deep was it? How deep were their feelings? The twoies are off stage. They're not talking. Alice is dead. It's such a big thing to have no comprehension of. I don't think we're ever going to know what role it has in this sort of supernatural aspect of this plot. Is it directly connected? Don't know. My instinct is no, but I don't know exactly what it's doing here. There's this little bit of dialogue that we you know, encounter around here where her, her best, where Alice's best friend is saying Alice kept secrets. And, and the fact that she kept secrets was a secret, which does change the way that you see somebody. And I suppose that when you realize that they did hide things from you a bit, I think we only knew one Alice. I mean, you could open a book with that line. Yeah. That's what I was talking about with them being disillusioned by her after death, like just to realize that they didn't really know her and that she wasn't honest with them. The friend seems betrayed is my reading on that. And here's the next big twist at 59 minutes, which is, guess what? Alice knew Ray, and Ray did not tell the family that Alice was going to to see him. I can't believe the number two radio psychic in Ararat was was not 100% honest with you. (laughs) Well, you know, he pulls out the client confidentiality defense. He's not a priest. Uh, contrary to what Rich pointed out. <laughs> well, he's kind of like a lawyer, perhaps. This one does bother me as a reveal, because I do feel like when someone calls you in to help you to help them sort of process the death of their daughter, you can say, I can't, I can't tell you anything about it, but I want you to know your daughter came to see me once or something. Where, where's his liability in that? Or, Vic, is it one of those things where... You know, the first time they come, you're so shocked that you don't say anything. And then the next time you talk to them, it seems awkward that you didn't say anything the first time. And then before you know it, three months have passed and you're like, well, I definitely can't say anything now. Rich, yeah. that sounds like con man talk and I'm not falling for it. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for your radio show. So, so this is July of 2005. So we're getting mm-hmm. pretty close here. Yep, we're closing out the last few months before her death in, in December. Wait, so she sees him in July of 2005, is that correct? Yeah, that's, yep. that's right. Yep. So that's before... Lake Mungo. Lake Mungo, which means that she was having these visions. So just putting together mm-hmm. sort of what we were talking about before, Lake Mungo was the culmination of something that had been haunting her for a long time before this. Is she just psychic? Well, no, in her case, it's the same as June. She's actually, at this point, talking about her dreams. Yes, but in her dream, she dreams of being wet and cold and standing in her mother's bed. That's right. Yeah, she's experiencing being a ghost before she becomes a ghost. She's, this is We're getting the other end of June's dream about her daughter being wet and like she was mm-hmm. when she came out of the lake and not wanting to open her eyes. Yeah, it's this sort of misconnection, uh, if you remember those in the 20th century, um, kind of thing, where Alice wrote her account of the standing at the bed thing as a diary entry, her dream. 
but it's a first person account of being a ghost. That's, that's how it plays. And again, it's premonitions and overlapping time frames. It's a ghost realizing that they're a ghost. It's a ghost realizing there's something wrong with them is how she words it. And what a terrible realization that is. The helplessness that Alice describes. And I do think it's highly metaphorical. I think it, it connects to a lot of things among the living, that feeling. Rich mentioned my assiduous paying attention to act breaks. Well, we're about to have a very, very clear plot point to going from act two to act three. And it will be the first invocation of the words Lake Mungo. I love the Lake Mungo reveal. That is something that improved on repeated viewings. Watching it again last night, probably for the, I guess the fourth or fifth time I've seen this movie, my pace picked up when they like turn the page and reveal Lake Mungo. Yeah. It's a, it's a clear signpost that we're moving into a new phase of the film. Things are going to be revealed and determined and figured out. I think it delivers on that. I mean, look, there's always that moment where like the title connects to the movie, right? Or some, yeah. most of the time yeah. there is. And I feel like a lot of times it is not especially meaningful in, in a lot of movies. In this case, it is a, in a movie that is basically like kind of twist after twist, reveal after reveal. It's a promise to you, the audience member, that like, this is it. We're going to make it make sense now. It's a harbinger of clarity that mysteries will be unraveled. Certainly an escalation of the story. Maybe, maybe the mysteries remain enigmatic in this case, but we take it to another level for sure. And it's revealed in cheerful bubble letters. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's something I've mentioned previously on the show is her consciousness of exactly the when and the where obviously isn't very specific. Otherwise, she would not have gone swimming at the dam, right? I don't think she's committing suicide by going there. She seems relatively carefree in the multiple videos we see. So what did she think? was going to happen that day. Did she think that was just another day? Did she think she had another few weeks or months or at least days and it was going to get her at some point, but she wasn't really on high alert? Or did she just completely resign herself to the fact that that was it? I don't know. It's like Final Destination or something. Like if you know you're going to die, you're not going to, you know, get in the bathtub with a electrical device because you're looking for ways to not get killed is what I'm saying. So going swimming would not be one of the top things on my list. In Alice's case, I feel like it's pretty clearly communicated that it is a, it's kind of a collision with destiny, right? Yeah. It's like an acceptance. Like she, if she went into the, went to the dam that day, knowing that she was going to drown, it's because she knew that there was no other choice for her. But she just doesn't like all the dancing around and stuff and the frivolity that she seems to evidence that day. I just don't get the feeling she thinks that's that's her last day on Earth. Well, maybe or is like there the argument to be made that like if you know what the end is, there's a certain like level of peace to be achieved. But wouldn't like, she it, say it, something to her fucking mom? Perhaps. But like think about like just take a step back to like the, the thing with Ray and the cancer patient. Mm hmm. I just think if that was my last day on Earth and I knew it, that's not how I would play it. Well, you're not a 16-year-old girl. Well, I mean, 
I mean, I call you one behind your back, but <laughs> more like a six-year-old. Mom reads the diary entry. She's looking at the calendar. She turns the page and it just says Lake Mungo on four days. Uh huh. And then all of a sudden, the family is like hyper focused on Lake Mungo and what happened there. What was it that made them connect? to the Lake Mungo trip that there was something there that they needed to figure out. Oh, the boyfriend had some footage. Like the the other person's camera footage, the boyfriend volunteered in or in and around this time and that showed part of the story. And then they, they want to get like yeah, that's what we're looking at right now. Is the idea that, you know, we're talking over a year, I think, after her death the boyfriend sort of spontaneously offers this cell phone footage or he theoretically was like still entrenched with the family. I mean, I, I see you're saying the like, why didn't the boyfriend offer up this footage prior? You could also reasonably assume that immediately after the death, that cell phone footage wouldn't have been considered valuable. It's only in light of everything else that they've learned that that footage might be valuable. He's saying that Kim didn't show me until about a year later. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That and, makes that, that that does make a fair amount of sense. And then the interviewer, who by the way is Joel Anderson, asks, like, "Well, what made you decide to tell June about this?" And he says, "If we didn't tell her, it would feel like we were hiding something." So that's why he found out about it a year later and then shared it with, with the family. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then upon seeing the footage, they see what she's doing and that pulls them in that direction. All right. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah. We have all of this video, which is very hard to make sense of, of these girls running around and screaming and whatnot. I guess we're supposed to pick out that Alice is burying some stuff under a tree and, oh yeah, there she is. I, I mean, I, this is basically what TikTok is, John. <laughs> is it this grainy? <laughs> John, I was at your wedding, and this is what all the videos I took look like. <laughs> well, up to, up to and including the girl burying something in the sand. <laughs> I know they're using, like, Nokias that I didn't even know had video cameras, so I'll give them that. Uh, this is pretty rudimentary technology. So what do you guys make of this whole... I mean, I understand superficially, but this whole idea that she buries these things that are meaningful to her uh, ritualistically, in a sense, at Lake Mungo, a bracelet and the phone. So she's like, oh, I'm going to die. I'm not going to need this stuff. Is that is that it? What is it? I don't I don't I don't really understand. Or, like, or is it like a sense of like denial? It's like wanting to discard of the phone so that like it's almost like what happened never happened. Mm. Yeah, like she it, didn't it see dies what here. She saw. Yeah. I think that those items belong that that she was a different person before mm. this and those items belong to an Alice that was never coming back from Lake Mungo. That was what she was burying. Was a, a girl who had not been confronted by her imminent death. How far away are we from, like, when she went to Lake Mungo, how far is that from her death? She went to Lake Mungo in August. She died in December. 
Yeah, I don't so, think she so really knows exactly when she's going to die. Yeah, it's so interesting that there's that there's sort of a three month period that I, that doesn't seem like we actually know much about. Maybe, yeah, you're right. We don't get a lot in that intervening period. Maybe I can answer my problem or question before with by the time she goes to the dam, she's like, I've been living with this sort of Damocles over my head so long. I kind of just feel like maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe I was wrong. And she's almost let her guard down and that's when it gets her. Or maybe she's accept- or maybe she's accepted it. Right, accepted that it's going to happen. But I, 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 I keep coming back to I don't believe that she's joking around and dancing but not saying anything meaningful, like fully knowing that she's about to go out into the water and die. You know, I, I don't think that that's what happens. Uh, I think it gets her by surprise to a degree. I still think Matthew killed her. <laughs> yeah. They're almost playing a game with him. He's kind of a weird kid, that's all I'll say. And there's the depancing thing. No, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. So, I'm telling you, it was a, he, he found the videotape in a fit of jealous rage. He drowned his sister. <laughs> he was the last one in, in the water with her. There's a very V.C. Andrews read on this movie. Yeah. yeah. He wanted her hoodie. <laughs> yeah, he wore her hoodie, and then he beat him. He, he was he was self-harming, but the, that explains all the bruises. This makes sense, guys. Dude, you've got a take. Yeah. Yep. So get me Joel Anderson on the phone. <laughs> Let me explain to you what your movie means. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just wanted to tell you guys that I'm right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're to the amazing phone video footage, August 2005, Alice's phone. This place looks like the surface of the moon through her shitty phone, but apparently she's walking through the sand dunes and we're getting the audio of Ray asking her at the same time in their session, are you, are you afraid of dying? And she says, yeah, of course I'm scared of dying. The way she delivers this, she still has a lightness, her smile and everything, and the way she isn't everyone afraid of dying. I don't think that's just deflection. I don't think here she's fully come to grips with the fact that her demise yeah. is imminent. I think she's more just trying to figure out what's happening. Like, why is she seeing what she's seeing? Why is she experiencing this? And that's, yeah, that's before Mungo. I think after Mungo, which, as Rich pointed out, we don't get much insight into how she is those last few months, but that would be a completely different mindset. Well, I'll argue to my grave that she's getting high and sleeping with the neighbors. (laughs) This is still just, I mean, I know we've called it on this show before, but editorially, compositionally, musically, audibly, this thing is just so well put together. Yes. The, the this, cross-cutting in multiple places of the interview dialogue over the images is so effective. There it is. Yeah. Ah, don't pause it on that, please. I have to. <laughs> it's so disturbing. Yeah, I'm talking, of course, we're talking about the moment when the slow, well, it's not that slow, but we have this somewhat brisk move of the handheld camera up to this figure. We can't, 
like you're sort of splitting the difference between it coming towards you and you coming towards it. It's a little iffy what the prevailing motion is, but suddenly we come together and it's this horrible, almost one-eyed face. Clearly it's evoking the, the bloated corpse, the drowned version of her, but it's a little bit different and it's wearing a coat and it's, it's really the ghost version of her. It's not the, the corpse necessarily. It's the acknowledging that it's dead version of her. Mm-hmm. It's just Matthew. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not Matthew this time. <laughs> when you see the movie the first time, I mean, this is something where I'm like, this movie is going to stick with me. This movie has really made a big impression on me. It hits you hard. And I think, yeah, I'll never forget this this image or this moment. That's for sure. This movie has been very sparing with its music and, and sound design. There's, it definitely like has a few like key moments, but there is a really great, very horror movie sting that happens when they yeah yeah when they when they release the big freeze on the face yeah. and when they release on the face again right there. there's a there's a stab in there that mm-hmm. is that just makes you jump out of your seat. Oh yeah, I know. It got me the other night when I watched this movie. That sort of muffled, indistinct, but violent sound. As the mm-hmm. camera just suddenly loses uh, stability, and we don't know exactly what happened or what we're looking at, but there's a, a sudden aggressive quality, and I don't think we get any explanation for that. But but it's jarring, it's frightening, something and it punctuates this, the whole scene. Something on this viewing indicated to me that she runs. Yeah, maybe. it's like her running away afterwards. Yeah, I think we. I just saw what you're talking about. Yeah. I think it's one of the most effective jump scares I've ever seen. And yeah. there's a sense in which the whole movie is building up to it. Absolutely. It's not, all, it's not all that complicated. That's the other, that's the crazy thing about it. It's a pretty basic scare. It's, it's getting by on blurry, grainy footage, which I mean, this movie is, is getting, it gets a lot of mileage out of blurry, grainy footage. There's so much um, restraint though, in the sense that that face it's not moving. Even the fact that it seems almost like a still frame and then suddenly it's moving, that almost intensifies the, the fright, doesn't it? Oh, my God, yeah. If, if this were any other movie, like its jaw would drop open, you know, mm-hmm. eight inches and giant teeth would come out. And that would be so much less scary. So yeah, we're at about, I think, my biggest problem with the movie even to this point, which is the idea that the family sees this footage we've got to the peak of the film we're past it the perception of june as a turning point is that oh this was all about getting stuff off of alice's chest so even though i'm i'm seeing this thing i didn't want to see the ghost of my daughter essentially the ghost of her future coming to get her is what alice recorded that night i i'm not unsettled by that i'm actually healing and everyone they reconcile with ray and they make peace and they gain closure now if that was my sister or my daughter on that video that would not be my reaction to the to the corpse video I, i have a problem with the takeaway from that that just scared the shit out of the three of us and everyone else who's ever seen this movie being oh okay we can move on now i'm at peace now 
would you be at peace, guys, if you were them, the family, confronted with that video? <laughs> I mean, personally, I think I've determined this is the weakest element of the movie. <laughs> uh, I can't really argue with you there. Um, I mean, I guess my question would be, like, what would you want the movie to do at this point? Yeah, I, I, I like, made a note of, like, this. that is this movie's equivalent of, like, this house is clean. Yeah, and, and that there's not even, like... That should not be the interpretation of that beat. It's not, oh, okay, great. We figured this out. Everything's going to be fine. The suggestion, I think, is that as they repeat twice in the film, Alice kept secrets. Alice kept the fact that she kept secrets, a secret. This was the big secret that Alice was really harboring. This was the thing that was that was haunting her. And so whatever caused it is certainly still a mystery, but that's not something that Alice knew. That's not something that was part of her. Their journey is to try and understand their daughter. And I think even if they still have to spend the rest of their lives putting the information together, they have all the information now. One of the reviews that I read, Rosie Fletcher on Den of Geek, said that the family believes that Alice's spirit moves on once she has revealed her true self to them. And I, I get that it's interesting that in life, Alice didn't feel she could share any of these hugely dramatic situations with her, her family. The affair with Brett or the Threpple, whatever it is, that's one thing, but then the premonitions... It's hard to talk about that, sure, but I would think it's harder to keep it entirely to yourself, isn't it? I mean, I guess she goes to Ray, and that might seem like enough for her, but wow, you have to be disconnected from your family to not want to seek their counsel and support as those that are closest to you if you were dealing with something like that. I understand very much that the movie is telling us that the family finds closure after this. They, they pack up the house and they move on and they believe that Alice has done the same. Alice is letting them off the hook. I'm okay with that. But I think it's very clear that Alice's ghost remains, literally, we see it in the window. Her family just can't see her anymore. Maybe this isn't even a, a criticism at all because I think that my reading of the movie where I land now is that this is Alice's movie, even though she's such a strange, atypical protagonist and that she's not on screen, she's not driving the plot, She's she is a figure of mystery. She's more like the Maltese Falcon than the, the protagonist. But she's a powerless ghost. And that goes from a liability in the movie to a strength. Because the true horror of this movie is that if we were on Alice's side of the curtain we'd see her frustration at being forever cut off from her family in life and now in death. If she could just reach into the normal ghost movie haunted house toolbox, she could communicate with them. But this is the story of a ghost who can't write on a steamed bathroom mirror or get them to bring out the Ouija board. And so she's just left behind alone and disconnected forever. The thing that you're you're complaining about with with the family moving on, and this is essentially agreeing with you, is that that is what makes the story really a tragedy. It is not the story of a of a house that is cleaned. It's the story of a family who doesn't learn anything. It's so subtle, though, because the movie, the documentary, is telling us 
it's a happy ending. And the movie is focusing from the quote unquote, the fake filmmakers perspective that this family are able to say goodbye to her and they feel like everything has been resolved. It's just the subtlest, subtlest subtextual thing that tells the audience of the horror movie, uh, uh-uh, this is actually really fucked up. And poor Alice is this tragic doomed soul that will will still be there. The only thing she could do for them was let them go. But she's still she's still fucked. She she doesn't get to move on. Like it's the opposite of this house is clean. It's the opposite of, oh, we've resolved the unfinished business. The ghost gets to go on to heaven or whatever. The movie does, I, yeah, I think definitively enough, say that ghost is still trapped. We're about to like hear it in her own words. Like this, this final beat that is like essentially Alice and the mother acknowledging a shared experience where they're both in the same room at the same time, but they're on different planes and they can't see each other. And that eventually Alice is left behind by her family. That is a heartbreaking final scene. It's almost like the family should watch the movie and be like, oh, fuck, we were totally wrong. Like, <laughs> Guys, the, the real tragedy of this movie is that that fucking dime store psychic Ray didn't bring a Ouija board to their fucking seance. <laughs> right. right. Then maybe she could have communicated with them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, look, Ray gets to come back into the house. Ray gets to come and hang out again. Yeah, I think this is a horror movie if you identify most strongly with Alice. And that's hard to do because she's only found here and there in wild footage before the present filmmakers even got here. She can't drive the story. We can't share her thoughts and feelings. She's more the subject of the film than the object. But there are horror movies that play with the idea of a ghost being the protagonist. Left in Darkness is one. It's not great, but it's conceptually interesting. Our protagonist becomes a ghost in that. There's the movie I Am a Ghost, which is super low budget. I've, well, I mentioned there, it. There was the, the, the others on this podcast. Absolutely. And I, I actually thought you were going to mention a ghost story as well. Yeah, a character becomes no, a ghost. I'm sorry. A, a ghost story was not ever in the running. <laughs> it, it was denied membership. <laughs> I'm just saying movies have played with the idea of our protagonist being on the other side of this barrier. And if you think of it as Alice's story, this is pure horror because she's trapped in the hell of loneliness and fear. Yeah, maybe she lets her family go. They don't deserve to wallow in her misery with her. I'm sure she's happy for them getting to go on with their lives, but she doesn't get let off the hook. And the, the worst part is there's no moral lesson here. There's no punishment in her fate being left behind to whatever existence she has is not just desserts for her. It just is. She's a tragic doomed figure. She does. She gets no mercy from the universe, no compassionate reprieve, but there's no lesson to learn for her. She didn't make a fatal mistake or something that we all should gain wisdom from. She's just a fly trapped in a web and the spider that devours her is her own doppelganger. And if this movie has an antagonist, I think largely this is a movie without an antagonist, which is very hard to pull off in any genre. But beyond cruel fate, which is preordained and inescapable, her antagonist is dead Alice. For whatever reason, 
this horror takes her form and it haunts images, photographs, footage, and the viewer of those images the way that it haunted her. It sucks to be poor Alice. <laughs> That's the strong takeaway of the movie. <laughs> sucks to be a teenager. Yeah, yeah, there's that. But, I mean, a lot of horror movies do make you dread the fate of the main character or a main character. We just feel like we're lucky not to be her. I get that. That's working here. Sad and scary is what this movie's going for. I think it totally gets there. I just think my problem the last couple of viewings was I didn't think of it that way. And I got too caught up in the family story and sort of the text, not the subtext, which is where they end up is a little misleading. I made too much of the fact that they get their bittersweet new beginning. And yeah, that's valid. That's part of the movie. But I think this movie wants us to remain behind with Alice in that window. Well, well, sure. I mean, like the very first thing that we talked about when we brought up this movie, like the thing that, that really sticks with you, we're forgetting like the, the essential actual ending of this film, which is the credits right? Mm -hmm. It's the moment where you realize that she was there, but unseen the entire time. Yeah. Almost trapped there. Which is a metaphor for her life in many ways. Yes, absolutely. If this, I mean, if this movie, to me, the horror is if this movie's perspective uh, on death is correct, then the world is a horrifying place. Yeah, exactly. This is such a bleak film. It's so bleak. Oh, yeah. Um, Jesus Christ. All right. I'm going to go get some scotch. (laughs) (laughs) See, watch watch this and and then use a ghost story as like the chaser, which Mm -hmm. is essentially, yeah, the the, the movie that starts with Alice dies and someone moves out and the family moves out of the house. What happens for the rest of eternity? Exactly. Yeah, that movie is the after the final credits of this movie. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what would it be like for Alice as different people come through the home? I like that movie, Rich. I just don't think it's a horror movie. I, I th- it kind of blew me away. It's a very interesting no, I, movie. I will concede it's not a horror movie. I kept coming back to the idea that this movie, to me, like when we talked about Session 9, I feel like this is the movie that gives me what you got out of like Session 9. And I can't quite pinpoint why that is. I don't know if it's all the, the recordings or the, the various like, revelations that happen. Look yeah, right yeah, here. This, this final final consultation. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I actually put in my notes at uh, you know an hour and 16 minutes, June's final consultation with Ray. I wrote session nine. It's session nine for June Palmer <laughs> because it's her critical final session. I see the parallel. Yeah. This is where her final tape reveals something huge and devastating. I feel like session nine would have been less effective if, if it had been called consultation nine. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the gist of this, it's not the same, obviously, but the idea is that we're intercutting two versions of the same scene that these people have experienced in dreams, family members at different times. I think this has been set up throughout the film, but the the basic idea is that June doesn't know that Alice is there in the room with her and they, they can't connect. And yeah. But Alice does. That's what's interesting is that Mm -hmm. Alice knows her mom is there and doesn't understand why she won't talk to her, but June doesn't see her. Right. Right. 
like Alice is the victim in this scenario. I guess that's back to the point that I was just making. It's so hard to really identify and sympathize with a character like Alice, who's not a traditional movie character, just in a way she functions in the film. But this this movie is a tragic, awful, nightmarish tale of of this girl and what she what she goes through and what her fate is. And if you just view it that way, it completely works on an, on a whole other level that this is just our little glimpses of what her story, her horror movie was. It's a really cool idea for a scene to intercut like two different times and places, people recounting their opposite sides of the same shared ephemeral misconnection between planes. And, you know, Ray sighs and it's like, he knows that's my takeaway from that because he's been in both interviews and it seemed like mm-hmm. to me he put he put the pieces together there and it was sad and then yeah we have the family loading up their moving truck going away there's, there you go there well there's another hor- there's another haunted house trope for you just to prove mm-hmm. that it fits in the genre precious few clichés in this film but i guess that might be one of them it's worth noting that that Allie has a fireplace in her room but she's right. but there's they they put a cover over it it's where she stored her safe yep Odd architectural choice. Sort of an obvious hiding spot, too. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, the the guy never searched there. <laughs> felt like they had to pry up the floorboard to get in there. It's, it's true. Like a difficult thing to get into in the dead of night. This Tui guy could have tried harder. I'm not sure uh, Mr. Tui was uh, a candidate for Mensa. <laughs> Maybe not. So they pile into their Subaru and they drive away. And before they go, though, they take this telling photo that the three surviving members of the family in front of their old house. And we slowly zoom in to the window and see what I would say is dead Alice. I kind of interpret like when I see the ghost, is it dead Alice or living Alice? This looks like dead Alice to me. That's one of the least distinct images of her. Yeah, and that is it. Until, though, we get lots of credits images here. Yeah. I caught this one when we were watching it this time, the happy birthday scene. I This was the first time that I caught the ghost in the background. During the scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me, I think I made a note in here, that this really does sort of remind me of Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. My version. Um and the, the part of what was so impressive, like, you know, when you're watching that movie and then or they're watching the show and then to go on the Internet and see all the ghosts that he had in the background. Right. Was, was really was really cool and really creepy. And to think that this movie was doing it, you know, 15 years ago is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's it's very slick, but. It earns its effects. Like it, it's yeah. it's a beautiful, it's a skilled magician, is what I'm saying. And especially for a director who apparently changed his name and uh, moved to Auckland and sells Subarus now. <laughs> yeah, is, does, is that the theory that you heard? That's what I'm. That's what I'm writing on. Yeah, he does like Subarus because yeah, that's clear from the film. My final thoughts are: I didn't do justice to the fear factor of this movie in our last conversation or two. And that landed with me. This movie's going to stick with me. It scored a lot of points this round. It's gained ground. And I 
Don't remember exactly how I rated it for rewatchability and introduction to others, but now I, I feel like my respect for it as a first viewing that people need to have has really grown, and my interest in watching it again myself has grown. This is one hell of a haunted house movie. Yeah, I would definitely second that. I I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to it. I, I will say that I felt very certain as I as I rounded this this viewing of it that of all the movies I'm not prepared to say that this is the best one but I am fairly confident that this is my favorite at this stage of the we've watched three out of the four given them loving autopsies I don't know which one I'm gonna which one I would say is number one I don't so that's that's a good place to be what I've really enjoyed about this loving autopsy phase is I feel like we're really starting to not just grapple with the minutia of each individual film, but like we're really able to step back and get some of the macro view of what makes these films so effective. What are the elements of the genre as a whole that these move these four movies are are executing and executing so well and why are they doing it so well and what is so effective about them and i feel like we're really starting to nail some of those things down again that dichotomy between the character theme uh, elements versus the horror elements how do you balance those things what's the nature of the ghost and I, for instance, I mean, I think this is one of the things that's interesting. This is, I think, the last film left in which the supernatural element is the ghost of a person and not some sort of demon or entity. Not not terrified, not The Shining, not mm-hmm. Oculus. This is the last one that has a, a human, an identifiably human supernatural element, which is something that's been, I think we've all been critical of coming into this. And here, look at it and go, well, it can be done. It can be executed in a way that's still really effective. Yeah. I mean, traditional ghosts have gotten their asses kicked in this tournament, yeah. but but not this movie. That's a great point. Yeah. And I think that the, my last thought that I wanted to share that I didn't get a chance to, it, it has to do with that, the, the human aspect of this beyond like the sort of fun house roller coaster quality. And I think Anderson himself said, The idea of someone in your family or someone you care for dying and being in a tragedy is the one thing I think everyone fears most. Part of why this movie is so genuinely scary is that it's tapping into our our deepest, worst fear as human beings. However not scary the movie might be in traditional terms of tension, threat, violence, that's a big deal. Because it's exploring the notion of our minds seeking alternatives to those that we love just being gone from existence, you know, ceasing to exist and looking for some kind of afterlife or whatever life goes on in a haunting something that is better than the hole in our life that they're passing leaves. We just want to figure out some way to keep them with us. One last quote from the Matthew Jackson's Decider review. He said, Are ghosts a real presence in our lives or do we invent them? And if we had a way to know for sure, would we actually want to? I think all of that is tapping into in some way the real core power of this movie. Enjoy your day at work, everybody.
<laughs> Don't be haunted by your own ghost. Vic, I, I had a feeling you, you wanted to say something there, a farewell. I was just going to say that having really spent some time with this film, that while losing a loved one uh, in, in some kind of tragedy is certainly a, a, a horror beyond imagining, this movie certainly posits that being the person lost yeah. does not seem like a picnic either. Exactly. We get both sides of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly that, – that's the most brilliant thing about this movie is that you get the loss and the grief – from the perspective of the people who are left behind and the person who is gone. And, uh, yeah, that's the double whammy. I am really looking forward to Oculus. I have talked to a lot of people about Oculus since we started this competition, trying to like raise some awareness, even though it was like a well-seen film in its day. I feel like this is a very polarizing movie coming up and to be the last movie in the competition is going to be an interesting one to pick apart because I've talked to a lot of people who hate this film. Wow. And I want to understand why, because I feel like we've been pretty positive on it. So yeah, that's surprising. I think, think, yeah, I think it's going to be a unique choice to, to, to pull apart here and figure out why maybe it's not as good as we think it is, or if just all my friends are idiots. I'm eager to find out and we're going to definitely spare no detail. We will look at all of it. We will get out all our sharp implements. I'm looking forward to it. I know you guys are listeners. We will bring it to you as soon as we can. Take good care. Don't get haunted. And uh, hopefully you won't see your own waterlogged corpse anytime soon. For Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley, I am John Evans. Be safe. Adios. Good night, everybody. Yeah, stay safe, everybody.